Hello again, this is Edwin Crozier from the Franklin Church of Christ. I hope that you've already listened to our August Questions and Answers Part 1 lesson. On the second Sunday night of every month, we at the Franklin Church of Christ devote our lesson to answering questions that have been submitted by brethren and guests at the Franklin Church of Christ. In August of 2005, we had a very special lesson that actually had so many questions devoted to one topic that we divided it up over two lessons. All these questions deal with intoxicating drink and alcohol and what we as Christians ought to do with it. If you haven't listened to part one, go to our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com, download that one, listen to it first, and then listen to this lesson as we answer several questions about how the Christian should relate to alcohol and intoxicating drink. Open your Bibles and study along with us. The second Sunday night of the month, and of course everybody who was here this morning knows what's going on, but for those of you who weren't, second Sunday night of the month is typically our question and answer service. We're taking questions that have already been submitted, uh, looking at the Bible and finding answers to some of those Bible questions. This month, we had quite a few questions that, all covered, that were all about the same topic. And because there were so many of them all on the same topic, I didn't figure you'd want an hour and a half to two hour sermon tonight, so we split it up into two. And if you missed this morning, you missed the first part of our lesson. This month, as we take a look at our questions and answers, basically we're dealing with questions that have come up because of a sermon that I preached a few weeks ago entitled Proverbs on Alcohol. Since that time, some folks have asked me some questions, and I admitted this morning that I am cheating a little bit. Not all of the questions we're dealing with have been asked specifically over the past few weeks. A few of them have, but not all of them. However, I thought that if I was going to be dealing with some questions on this issue, it, it probably would just go ahead and be better to deal with the questions that I've heard over the years regarding what we've said about alcohol. So I've added in some of those, plus some of this information actually we already covered in a lesson last year in a handout that I gave out with that. The lesson there was called, Is Intoxicating Drink Allowed in Moderation? And so... Dealing with those questions, and tonight we're going to be dealing with five questions. Remember what we learned just a few weeks ago from looking at Proverbs on alcohol. In the book of Proverbs, our conclusion came from Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 4. He says, it's not for kings, O Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink. And then also, and you know what, I meant to change that slide this afternoon and I forgot to do it. Proverbs 23, 31 do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. The conclusion of the proverbialist was not the conclusion of so many modern Christians today that, that we take alcohol and intoxicating drink and have it in moderation in small amounts. The conclusion of the proverbialist was, don't drink it, don't even look at it. If we're going to be following the advice of the proverbialist, we're not going to be drinking it. But there's a lot of questions that come up just from that. That lesson was specifically about what the Proverbs had to say about it. It didn't cover everything in the Bible. And so some folks have some questions. Well, what about these verses, these other verses that we know that mention uh, wine and, and strong drink and those kind of things? And so we want to deal with those questions as well to help us understand what the Bible says about that. This morning, these are the questions that we looked at and just kind of a, an overview we looked at the concept that the Bible presents wine in a positive light, but we learned that in the Bible, the word wine is not used the same way we use it. We learned that in the Bible, the word wine can mean intoxicating, a fermented wine, and it can also mean unfermented, non-intoxicating wine, or grape juice, essentially. We learned that the ancients could, in fact, prevent fermentation, and we noticed several quotes from non-biblical uh, folks who talked about keeping the juice from fermenting. 
We talked about the water to wine in Canaan. We recognize that once we understand that in the Bible the word wine doesn't necessarily mean intoxicating, fermented wine. That kind of pulls, that draws away some of the objections that people raise based on that water to wine miracle. And of course, remember what we pointed out. That if that wine was intoxicating in John chapter 2, that, that passage doesn't authorize drinking in moderation. It, it authorizes drinking parties and drunkenness, which we all are already saying is wrong. We all already agree that drinking parties and drunkenness is wrong. So we go back to John chapter 2. We've got to think about what's going on there. He's not dealing with intoxicating wine. He's dealing with essentially the drink of the day that was unfermented, the juice that they also called wine. And then we talked about the passage in Matthew where Jesus says, uh, I came eating and drinking and you accused me of being a glutton and a wine bibber or a drunkard. And we, we talked about some of what that meant and pointed out that first of all, just because they accused him of doing something didn't mean he had actually done anything like it. Uh, remember, they were fishing around for some reason not to listen to Jesus and so just because they accused him of it doesn't mean he had done anything of the sort. Secondly, once again, we realize that the issue of of going back and, and talking about gluttony and being a wine bibber doesn't necessarily refer to being a drunkard, but rather an issue of having control of the physical passions such that we basically eat to live, not live to eat. And we're actually going to talk a little bit more about that in one of the questions tonight. We're going to be dealing with five more questions this evening on this issue. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Glorious God and Father in heaven, we're so thankful for your love and your mercy. We're thankful for your word that you've given us that helps us understand how to serve you. And we pray, Father, that each of us will have open and honest hearts, that we'll live in accord with your word, we'll do what you have said, that we will, that we will not be involved with, with wine and strong drink, but that we will keep ourselves sober and pure so that we can discern what is right and what is wrong, that we can submit to your spirit through your word. And we pray that you would watch over us and protect us, Father. Guide us through your word that we might glorify and honor You. Help us to have control over our physical desires, to control ourselves, so that throughout our lives every day, we send You the honor and the praise and the glory. We ask that You be with us tonight as we study Your Word. In Your Son's name we pray. Amen. And I just want to repeat, just in case there were some who didn't catch it this morning, the questions that have been asked of me over the past few weeks regarding this, none of the folks who asked me, and I mean, there might be somebody here that really wants to drink, I don't know, but as far as the folks who questioned me, none of them were saying, oh, I really think we ought to get to drink, and here's the reason why. The questions have all just been, you know, hey, I, I like what you said, but what about this verse? How does this verse fit in with it? So I don't want anybody to think that, that somebody came up to me and we have some kind of contention that's pushing for, for drinking, because I don't think that's the case. But rather, oh, we just have some questions. How do we deal with these verses? Because there are some, as we learned in last Sunday night's lesson, there are some hard questions, and we've got to deal with those hard questions. The first question we're going to be dealing with tonight regarding intoxicating drink, is didn't Jesus talk about putting new wine into old wineskins? Why would he use that as an illustration if intoxicating drinks are sinful? We can look in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 17. And in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 17, Jesus used this, essentially this parable or this illustration. And he said, nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. In Matthew chapter 9, in the context, Jesus had been asked why his disciples didn't fast, but John's disciples and the Pharisees did fast. And Jesus used this as one of his illustrations for demonstrating his point. If you'll notice, in the greater context, in Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 14, then the disciples of John came to him asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? 
Jesus said to them in Matthew 9.15, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they'll fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. Now I believe that we've often made a mistake with this passage trying to put some type of allegorical or or, or some type of deep meaning into these illustrations that Jesus uses here. A lot of times we'll look at this and, and you'll hear sermons from this passage that talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament and how they don't mix and that sort of thing. And I really don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. I mean, I could be wrong about that, but I really think that all Jesus is doing is illustrating things that are appropriate and things that aren't. And they asked him, why aren't your disciples fasting? He says, because it wouldn't be appropriate for them to fast. It would be just as appropriate for them to fast as for the bridegroom to be there with his attendants and them fasting as they're preparing for the wedding. A time of rejoicing and celebration and instead they're fasting. That's not appropriate. In the same way that that's not appropriate, it's not appropriate to put unshrunk cloth to patch shrunk cloth because when you wash it, that cloth is going to shrink, it's going to tear. You just don't do that because of the result. In the same way that you don't do that, it's also, it's like putting old wine or new wine into old wine skins. You just don't do that. And I really think that that's all Jesus is doing here is giving an illustration. He says, what? Well, the reason they're not fasting is you just don't do that. It's not the way you do things at a time of rejoicing. I think that's what's going on here. However, that really doesn't play into the issue about the use of wine here. A lot of folks take a look at this and say, see, what this demonstrates is that they had wine, they had wine skins. It must be fermented. Because the reason these wine skins would burst is because as the wine fermented, it would produce gas, and it would stretch the wineskins. And an old wineskin would have dried out and become brittle, and it wouldn't be able to stretch, and so it would burst. But a new wineskin would have that stretchability, and it would be able to uh, handle this production of gas inside it so that it would stretch, and it wouldn't burst. And so, folks, take a look at this passage. See, obviously the wine is fermenting. Obviously, uh, that makes it okay. There's a couple things. Even some I thought about this afternoon, not in the outline. First of all, I don't know any place in this passage where it says they're drinking this stuff. Uh, and, and why they're drinking it. We've, we've already conceded that there would be a use for medical purposes. Maybe if it's fermenting, they're only using it for medical purposes. We don't know what they're doing with this wine once it's fermented. But that, I don't think, is the real issue that we can learn from this. First of all, I think the whole logic behind this, this objection, is a little questionable because the basic logic behind this is, well, Jesus would certainly not use this as an illustration if drinking intoxicating wine was sinful. So it must be authorized because he uses this idea of fermentation as an illustration. Well, look in Luke 16. In Luke 16, beginning at verse 1, now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. In verse 5, he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. 
And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of life. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by the means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you to the eternal dwellings. Now Jesus calls the steward unrighteous. He says he was squandering the money that he was given the stewardship over. The fact that Jesus used this as an illustration, does that mean that we have authority to squander our master's money if we have stewardship? Is Jesus then giving authority for us to be unrighteous because He used a person's unrighteousness as an illustration? What we find is that just because Jesus uses a particular story or a particular incident as an illustration of a point does not suddenly mean that everything in that story or illustration is now authorized for us. I think we would all agree that being unrighteous is not authorized by this illustration in Luke 16. I think that we would all agree that being an unrighteous steward and squandering our our master's money and squandering what's placed under our trust is not authorized just because Jesus uses an illustration. We can't go back to Matthew chapter 9 and suddenly say, oh, drinking intoxicating drinks must be authorized because Jesus used the fermentation process as an illustration of what's inappropriate. Uh, So I I don't think we can make that argument. The whole whole, uh, setup is fallacious. But then, let me also just make some comments about the common way we use this passage, or is used today. And I think there's something underneath the surface that's uh, a little different than the way we commonly think it. I pointed out a little while ago, the whole idea is, well, we wouldn't put it in old wineskins because it's dry and brittle and it won't stretch. We put it in the new wineskins because it will stretch. Well, the reality is, fermentation produces a lot of gas. And, you know, a new wineskin is not just infinitely stretchable. And the reality of the matter is that if they were going to be fermenting it in the wineskin, there's a great number of the new wineskins that would not be able to stretch enough and they would burst and would be ruined and would fall all over the ground. And the wineskin and the wine would both be lost. When we actually take a look at this passage, instead of demonstrating that, oh, there's, there has to be fermentation, what it actually demonstrates is these folks knew how to keep it from fermenting. Because what would happen, why wouldn't you put it into an old wineskin? Not because it's dry and brittle, but because that old wineskin had had the juice in it, it's got the yeast from the old juice and it's been exposed and now it's emptied and it's sitting there and that yeast has become activated and you start pouring in new juice in there, you can seal it up, you can do whatever you want to with it, that old yeast has become activated, it's going to start fermenting. But you put it in a new wine skin that's never had any juice in it, it's not been exposed to all the elements as far as the, the yeast and the juice, it's not going to be activated, they, they seal it up. Remember we talked this morning about one of the ways they kept things from fermenting, put it in a jug, seal it up. They seal it up, keep the air from getting to it, and it won't ferment. So what this actually demonstrates is that they understood, hey, we can keep this from fermenting. We can keep it from producing these gases that are going to stretch and explode. The reality is, if they wanted to have fermented wine in those, excuse me, fermenting wine in those wine skins, and they wanted to keep the wine skin from bursting, there was only one way to do that. And that's to put vents in the neck, which allows the gas to get away. Well, if you put vents in the neck, it doesn't matter if it's old or new. It's going to get away. It's not going to stretch. It's not going to be a problem. So actually in the story, instead of having some issue where, oh, there has to be fermentation, this story actually demonstrates that they were controlling it and keeping it from happening. Because that's the only way to make sure that old or new wineskins don't burst. And so this passage does not demonstrate a positive and approving light of drinking fermented, intoxicating wine. In fact, it does just the opposite. It provides evidence of what we've already suggested, that they knew how to keep it from fermenting.
Next question. Well, didn't Paul tell Timothy to drink wine in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 23? In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 23, Paul says no longer, to Timothy, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Let me point out to you. He did not say no longer drink water exclusively, but it's okay to have intoxicating wine in moderation. Actually, in this passage, we don't know if this is intoxicating wine or not. There's nothing in the context that tells us. Now, most folks believe it is because... Most folks have, have determined, and, and I don't know if this is true or not, most have determined that, well, it's the intoxicating wine that provides health benefits and not just grape juice. But, of course, if you listen to Paul Harvey, as he's selling Welch's, he tells us about all the health benefits of just plain old grape juice. Now, we really don't know if this is intoxicating or not. Most folks believe it is, but even if it is, notice why he tells them to drink it. Because of your frequent ailments. Well, we've, I've already conceded based on what we've already learned, that when it came to medicinal purposes, intoxicating drinks were used for medicinal purposes in the Bible, and we're allowed to do that. And so, certainly Paul did tell him to do this. If it is intoxicating, we simply have another passage that goes along with what we've already conceded. Intoxicating drinks are allowed for medicinal purposes. And so, if this is an approved case of drinking intoxicants, it's only what we've already said, approved for medicinal purposes. That was the easiest, quickest one to answer. The rest of them take a little bit longer. Why does Paul say not to appoint men who are addicted to wine as elders, but deacons are not to be addicted to much wine? This is becoming a more and more common argument in favor of drinking in moderation. And we're going to talk a little bit about the arguments, but the passage is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, and then verse 8. And of course, you can also find the elders' qualification in Titus chapter 1 and verse 7. <coughs> Excuse me, there it says that an overseer then must be not addicted to wine. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not addicted to much wine. And there, there are arguments to be made from this passage that are made on several different levels. We're going to take a look at that, but I want to first of all give you some food for thought. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and be honest with you right now. I'm going to tell you what I think about this passage. But I admit that probably most folks, in fact, probably even most of you won't believe me. Uh, but, and so we're going to deal with the arguments assuming that it is intoxicating. But my question, just considering what we've already learned, that so much about this issue of intoxicating drinks and so much of the arguments that we've had with folks about it, we take a look at these passages and we see wine and we automatically assume intoxicating wine. What is it in this passage that causes us to believe it's intoxicating wine that he's talking about? The reason why we believe it's intoxicating wine is because due to all of our debating and all our arguing, we have become convinced in our own mind that the only thing the Bible ever condemns is drinking too much alcohol. And so when we see him saying something about too much or being addicted to it or being given to it, we automatically assume, oh, that's got to be alcohol. It's got to be intoxicants because, why, we, we wouldn't be given to anything else. We wouldn't be addicted to anything else. That, it's almost as though we think that's the only thing that God ever condemns having too much of. But actually, as we look through Scripture, God has already pointed out, and we, we used some of this this morning, or we noticed this this morning, that when it comes to eating and drinking, God has condemned overindulgence on things that had nothing to do with intoxication. Remember, we looked at this passage this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. Throughout the Scripture, gluttony is condemned. 
And here is another place where it's condemned. He says, you know, you land whose king eats too much, you're going to have problems. But when you have a land whose king understands, you eat for strength and not for drunkenness. And of course, keep in mind, you can eat all day long, you're not ever going to get drunk. The word here is translated drunkenness. It has the idea, though, of just of too much, of being filled. Now, if you're filled with something that's intoxicating, that's going to equal being drunk. And so the same word is used there. But again, you look at the context. But the point being that what God says of kings here in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 is that kings need to learn to eat to live, not live to eat. And I believe that when God establishes qualifications for elders, that's the same qualification He has for elders. Blessed is, I mean, we could, we could take this and apply it today to churches and say, uh, woe to you, O congregation, whose elders are lads and, and whose leaders feast in the morning, but blessed are you, O congregation, whose elders are noble and whose princes, uh, whose leaders eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. They've learned to control their physical passions. They're not given over to gluttony and wine They're not, they're not given over and addicted to that. They've got themselves under control. They eat when it's appropriate for strength. And not just for enjoyment, not just to deal with stress and depression, not just to, that's just because they're bored. They eat for strength. And that's it. And they know the appropriate time. And I really think that's the qualification for elders in First Timothy and in Titus. Now, as I said, I think it's become just so, such a given in people's minds that that's about intoxicating wine, that uh, I'm not sure what I could say to prove that to anybody. Again, there's nothing in the context that tells us specifically which one it was. I wish we could ask Paul. So, let's assume I'm wrong. Let's assume that it is talking about intoxicating wine there in 1 Timothy and also in Titus. Let's assume that it is saying that an elder is not to be addicted to wine and a deacon is not to be addicted to or given to much wine and it is referring to intoxicating beverage. Let's, let's just go ahead and assume that for a moment and see if this passage then authorizes the moderate drinking of intoxicating drinks. There are basically three levels of argumentation that are made from this passage. The first is why, since it is restricted for elders and deacons, that means that it's not restricted for the rest of us. Because what would be the point if no Christian is allowed these things? Why would we then restrict it from the, if, if they're a Christian, they're not doing this? So then it must be okay. For us normal Christians, you elders and deacons, you guys have a little bit more restriction, but us normal Christians, we're allowed a little bit. And on the surface, that may seem logical. But I want you to notice that if that is the logic we should use with this passage, the passage doesn't authorize moderate drinking of alcohol. It would then authorize for the rest of us to actually be addicted to wine. That's what it says, don't be. Don't be given to it. Don't be addicted to it. And so if this passage says, oh, because it's restricted for elders and deacons, that means it's lawful for the rest of us. This doesn't authorize moderate drinking. It authorizes addiction. You see that? Now, the second thing I want you to notice is take a look at those qualifications, the greater list. An elder, an overseer then, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach. I guess those normal Christians don't have to be above reproach because why would he say that about elders? if it already applies to all Christians. We've got to be the husband of one wife. We've got to, the elders have to be temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. 
Not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now certainly there are some things in here that are specific to elders, but above reproach, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, pugnacious. Pugnacious means a brawler, a fighter. Uh, Gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Are, Are these all things that we normal Christians are allowed to be? We don't have to be above reproach. We don't have to be temperate. We don't have to be prudent. We don't have to be respectable or hospitable or able to teach. We can have love of money. We don't have to be gentle or peaceable. We are allowed to be pugnacious or fighters or brawlers. The logic that says that, well, if it's restricted for the elder or the deacon, that means the rest of us are allowed, then that's going to mean some things about all these other qualifications too, isn't it? The fact is, most of these qualifications are simply saying that an elder is just supposed to be a good Christian. Somebody who's grown and matured in the rules and laws of God that apply to all of us. And so just because something is restricted for the elders here doesn't mean that it's authorized for the rest of us. The second level of argumentation that is made here is that, well, what this passage restricts is being addicted to wine or to much wine. And so what that means is, even the elders and the deacons, as long as they're not addicted to it, are allowed some of it. Again, the logic on the surface seems to be right. But let's apply that to some of these other qualifications here. There in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and Titus also, as it talks about as it talks about these elders, you'll notice in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 3, free from the love of money. If we look over in Titus, Chapter 1, verse 7. The overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. If you have the King James, it says not greedy of filthy lucre. Well, if we're going to apply the same logic that folks apply to the not given to wine, to this statement of not greedy for filthy lucre, not fond of sordid gain, does that mean that we're allowed a little bit of sordid gain? We're allowed to be involved a little bit in filthy lucre as long as we're not really greedy about it and not really fond over it? Does the fact that he limits this fondness and this greediness suddenly mean that a little bit of it is okay? Of course not. The fact that he takes an extreme and says this isn't allowed doesn't necessarily mean that the smaller amount is allowed. So we don't find authority there. And if we can't find authority from some other passage, we can't just suddenly go to this one and say, oh, there's authority now for drinking in moderation. The third level of argumentation that's made, and this is by far the most sophisticated, is the contrast of what's said to the elder versus what's said to the deacon. You'll notice what's said to the elder right here, not addicted to wine. This is from the New American Standard 95 Update Edition. the uh, King James says given the wine here, I think. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not addicted to much wine. or not given to much wine. And so, basically, what we're supposed to believe from this is that there's two levels of things that are restricted here. The deacons are restricted from being given to much wine, but the elders have a stronger restriction. They're not allowed to be given to wine or addicted to wine. Now, I just want you to think through that logic for just a moment. Basically, then, what we're supposed to believe about these two different levels is that the elder, presumably because of greater authority, more decision-making, 
having to have more judgment involved in the congregation, not allowed to have, not allowed to be given to wine. They have the stronger restriction. They can't be addicted to any wine. But now the, the deacon, because their responsibility is not as great, I guess, they're allowed to be addicted to, to wine. They're just not allowed to be addicted to much wine. Does that make sense to you? Because that doesn't make sense to me. Addiction to wine is addiction to wine. Being given to wine is being given to wine. And this idea of, well, given to wine is different from being given to much wine. Well, the fact that they're addicted or given, doesn't that automatically imply much? Because that's what addiction is all about. That's what being given to it is all about. I'm always at it. And so I think what you find here is that Paul simply just had two different ways of saying the same thing. Don't be given to wine. Don't be given to much wine. What's the difference between those two statements? Where would we find a difference? At what point would they no longer, that they could still be a deacon but no longer be allowed to be an elder? Well, you had, you've been, you've been addicted to five drinks a week so you can't be an elder. You can still be a deacon though because you're only addicted to four or five drinks a week. I mean, that's the kind of thing that we're going to have to start figuring out here. Where, where does that line draw? That they can be a deacon but they can't be an elder for how much wine they're drinking. And, of course, they could all drink a little bit more if they just wouldn't become a deacon at all. It just doesn't make sense. Basically, I think when you have given to wine, given to much wine, it's six one, half a dozen the other. It's just two different ways of saying the same thing. And the restriction is the same. They're not supposed to be given to wine. Next question. Didn't Paul say drinking wine was a matter of Christian liberty in Romans chapter 14 and verse 21? Now, this is the passage that when I was studying this to try to decide exactly what I believed on it and figuring out exactly where I was. I'll be honest with you, this was the passage, but if I were going to be on the side of it's a lot, we're allowed to have a little bit of drinking, this is the one I'd be going to. I got to looking at this passage and I got to thinking about Romans chapter 14 and I noticed something. You know, how many times have you heard Romans 14 discussed? And when you've heard Romans chapter 14 discussed, you hear about eating meat and why folks believed it was wrong. And you hear about keeping days and why some folks believed that was wrong, but other folks would do it. But you know, there's something very interesting in Romans 14. For all the sermons and speculation that we have heard about what was going on with the meats and the days, Romans 14 doesn't tell us what was going on with the meats and the days. Romans 14 doesn't tell us why some people would eat the meat and some people wouldn't. Romans 14 doesn't tell us why some people would keep the days and some people wouldn't. We speculate back and we think, oh, well, this eating of meats, he could possibly be talking about the Jews who wouldn't eat the, the meats that were unlawful according to the old law, whereas the Gentiles would. Then again, we look over at 1 Corinthians 8 and we think it's possible that he's talking about meats offered to sacrifices. That's possible. And so maybe some of the folks, some of the Jews, knowing that these idols were nothing, would eat meats offered to sacrifices while the Gentiles wouldn't. But the reality is we really don't know what it was that was causing the folks to eat the meat and the other folks not to. When we take a look at those days, keeping the days, we can speculate it may well be that some of the Jews continued to keep some of their special days from the law, whereas some of the Gentiles wouldn't. I can also imagine where there might be some Gentiles who said, look, every year I honored Zeus on this day for giving me all my food. 
How can I become a Christian and not honor God the same way? Not that they expected the church to have some kind of special day, but, you know, look, on this day for all my life, I've honored Zeus, and now I find out he's not real, but there is a real God. I ought to be honoring him as well. And in their mind, they might keep a special day for that. Whereas somebody else might say, you know, that's ridiculous. I mean, who knows why? We don't know why. And so suddenly then I come to Romans 14, 21, and I realize, well, I don't know why some of these folks wouldn't drink the wine. It's my assumption that they wouldn't drink it because it's intoxicating. It's my assumption that they were having the same argument back in the first century that we're having today about intoxicating drinks. What happens here in Romans 14.21 is we take our debate today and we shove it into this verse and assume that there were folks back then who were saying, like me, you shouldn't drink intoxicating wine, where there were others who said, no, it's okay. And one of the things that's interesting to me is how many folks that will come to this verse, what they'll point out to us is that they are the big brother. They're the strong one who understands. Now, to protect my conscience, they won't drink around me, and, and they might not even drink, but, but they're the big, strong brother who knows that it's okay. But, but they're not going to exercise their Christian liberty lest I fall. And certainly I appreciate that if that's what this verse means, and I appreciate you if you don't ever have that stuff around your house or, or, or try to offer it to me or sell it to me or any other thing, because uh, I think all that would be wrong. Uh, but we go back to the verse and we realize well, we don't know why they wouldn't drink it. You know, maybe there were some who remembered the Nazarite vow. And they were thinking about what special servants and how devoted these Nazarites were to God and they weren't allowed to drink it. And so they thought, well, maybe they thought as Christians that they probably shouldn't drink anything that came from the grave. I don't know. Maybe there were some that looked at Jeremiah, I think it's 35, and they heard about the Rechabites because their father told them not to ever drink wine they wouldn't do it. And so, and God used that as a great illustration. You know, this guy's kids will do what he says, but my children won't do what I say. And, and maybe they thought to themselves, hey, maybe we shouldn't drink wine or anything from the grave. Maybe it had something to do with pagan sacrifices. The fact that some of this wine had been offered, some of this juice had been offered as a libation to Mercury or Venus or Zeus. And so we're not going to drink any of that. I mean, I just don't know what, what would cause them not to drink it, and we don't know. Maybe it had something to do with the, in Daniel chapter 1. We've been studying Daniel in our class back there. In Daniel chapter 1, Daniel refused to drink the king's wine. And we really don't know why. But maybe there was some background like Daniel's that caused folks to say they shouldn't drink it. We don't know if it's talking about intoxicating, if it's saying they wouldn't drink anything from the grape, anything that might be called wine, if there were just certain circumstances in which they wouldn't drink the wine. We don't know. And so here's the only thing that we say about Romans 14.21. If we're going to come to this passage and say that this is authority for drinking intoxicating wine, we have to admit that we're basing it on what we don't know. That we're assuming that this passage is talking about intoxicating wine because the text doesn't tell us that. We're assuming then that intoxicating wine is a matter of Christian liberty because that's not what's said here. All it says is that there must have been some situation in which one Christian would drink wine for some reason and another wouldn't. Now, some folks would say, well, that's just ridiculous, Edwin. Who ever had a problem with drinking grape juice? Well, you know, I don't know. But, you know, what we assume is the only thing they have a problem with is intoxicating wine. Well, some of them had problems with meat, and that didn't intoxicate anybody. So I don't know why somebody might have had a problem with drinking non-intoxicating juice. But they, some of them had problems with eating non-intoxicating meats. So I'm not really surprised if they did. Again, the point is, if we're going to use this passage as authority... We're just going to have to be honest with ourselves and say, now I'm assuming that this is talking about intoxicating wine because it doesn't tell us that. I am not willing, based on everything else we've studied, to make that assumption about this verse. 
Final question. But what if I can hold my liquor and it does not impair my judgment? When I've preached on this before, or when I've talked to folks about it before, I'll go to the passages like we read in Proverbs 31 where it says it's not for kings or Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink wine or to desire strong drink, lest they drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the law. And someone will say, well, sure, okay. But if I can hold my liquor so that it doesn't impair my judgment and I'm not going to pervert what is decreed, then it's okay for me to have a little bit. The problem is when it perverts my judgment, and I can, I can hold it. Well, first of all, let's just talk a little bit about holding your liquor. If you can hold your liquor, what does that mean about your past? You weren't born with the ability to hold your liquor. One day you started drinking it, and you drank more of it, and you drank more of it, and you drank more of it, and now you've got a tolerance. And so are we now supposed to believe that because you spent all this time sinning in the past, now it's no longer sin because you've developed a tolerance and it's okay? I'd also like to point out to you, as I was doing some research for this particular lesson, several of the websites that I went to said that if you make the statement, I can hold my liquor, if you've developed a tolerance, that's one of the indicators of addiction and alcoholism. And so if you're using that argument, I mean, those are folks from the world that think it's okay to drink. They're going to put a red flag by, uh-oh, this person might have a problem with drinking. Now, not, not absolute, but just this is one of the indicators. If you, if you can say, I can hold mine and it doesn't affect me. By the way, one of the things they pointed out is that while mentally, as far as your perception of the things that you may seem more tolerant, physically you never develop tolerance to it. It always does the same thing to you physically, uh, no matter what you think is going on. Now, considering this idea of I can hold it and it's not hurting me when I just have a little bit, I want you to remember the passage that we've already studied in, in the last lesson, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. And for your further study, you can look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 7, but tonight we're just going to stay here in Ephesians 5, 18. Don't get drunk with wine for that dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. I just want to remind you what we've already learned about this passage. A lot of folks come to this passage and say, oh, I didn't get drunk. Well, that word drunk is from the Greek word methusko, which is what's called an inceptive verb. Inceptive means starting at the inception. You know when the inception is? The beginning. The inceptive talks about the process from beginning to end and everywhere in between. When Paul here, in these two passages, uses this form, he's not condemning being stone-cold wasted. He's condemning being involved in the process that leads to drunkenness. And basically the idea is, to the extent that you put this stuff in your body, you can no longer be filled with the Spirit. As you to every drink you take, to that extent you can't be filled with the Spirit. Because immediately it starts affecting your ability to judge and to perform what is decreed. And so if we're going to be filled with the Spirit, there's only one way. Don't even get started. Now, this inceptive verb doesn't say anything about the intention of the person involved. So I've talked with some folks and they say, well, I didn't intend on getting drunk, so I never started the process. My question was, you ever know anybody that, who didn't intend to get drunk, who got drunk? I went to college with a guy, he told me he swore up and down, he wasn't ever going to drink. Then once he started drinking, he wasn't ever going to get drunk. And I remember the nights when I had to roll him over on his side and make sure that he threw up, that he wouldn't, wouldn't choke himself. We had bunk beds. I had to make sure to put him in my bed on the bottom, because if he threw up, I didn't want to get it. You know, I mean, there's a person that didn't intend on it, 
But they did it. And this verb doesn't have anything to do with the intention of the person doing it. it it's about the process. When does the process of getting drunk begin? When you grab that can and pop that top and take that first drink. And that's condemned here. Something else that Scripture points out. You know, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, and also we've got some other passages you can look at in your own study, 1 Peter 1.13 and 5.8. But this one, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6 through 8, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and be sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. And here's the positive command. What is God's positive command to us? Our command is be sober. As we consider how we might be able to fulfill this command, I want to share something with you that I got out of a, a tract that comes from the Mental Health Mental Retardation Center of Southeast Texas, from the Channing L. Beat Company. They put it out. It's a little tract that's called What Every Teenager Should Know About Alcohol. Before I show you the quote, and regrettably, I do not have this tract in, anymore. Uh, I had borrowed this from somebody as I was studying at an earlier time. So, but, I, but I do have this quote. I've read the entire tract. In the track, they point out there are three things you can do with alcohol. You can abstain, you can use it safely, or you can abuse it. This tract is not written by people like me who think that you shouldn't use it at all. This track, this brochure is written by people who think that there is a way to use alcohol safely. And what we find is the same thing I pointed out in the Proverbs lesson, that when you take a look at folks in the world who believe these things, uh, they don't have to jump through hoops to try to defend themselves. They don't think it's wrong to take a drink, so they don't mind making statements that we would never make because they just don't mind being honest about it. They don't think they have to defend themselves. I want you to listen to this quote. Now, remember, what, what are we talking about? We're talking about being sober. According, and this is what every teenager needs to know. It takes one hour for the alcohol from one drink, which is 12 ounces of beer, 5 ounces of wine, or a one-and-a-half ounce shot of 80-proof whiskey or mixed drink, to leave the body. So... A 150 to 180 pound person could consume one drink per hour and still stay relatively sober. See, now I know all kinds of folks that would jump on that and say, see, God says we can stay, we got, all we got to do is stay sober and they pointed out, they've proven it medically. We can have one drink per hour if you weigh 150 to 180 pounds. Look, uh, you know, according to this, I could have quite a few more. Uh, but still stay sober. But I want you to notice that little word, maybe actually the big word right before sober. Relatively sober. Do you know what relatively means? Relatively means it's relative. In other words, compared to the guy that's at the party that's drinking five drinks in that one hour, when I only drink one, compared to him, I'm sober. But what about compared to the guy who didn't drink any? I'm not sober, am I? Because it's relative. Compared to the guy who has two or three in an hour, I am, but compared to that other guy, I'm not. Now, my question is, what was God's command? Was God's command there in 1 Thessalonians that we, because we're of the day and of God's children, that we ought to be relatively sober? That we ought to be sober compared to the drunk over there in the corner? No, it was just being sober. Be sober. That's what God has commanded of us. Be sober. And here are folks that have nothing to hide, nothing to lose. They point out the real facts. You drink one, 
you're not sober anymore. You're only sober as related to those other guys that are worse. You tell me which one is obeying God's command. And finally, as we consider this concept of being able to hold your liquor and it's not impairing your judgment, you realize that the very first thing that alcohol does, with the first drink, alcohol is very interesting. It's not like anything else. Alcohol can actually get absorbed through the linings in, in your, in your uh, mouth, your esophagus, all the way down to your stomach. It, I mean, it enters the bloodstream almost immediately. I mean, it is, it's in a minute. You know, if you drink a Coke, it's got to go down to your stomach, it's got to process and go through, and then the nutrients take away. Alcohol, it just immediately starts being absorbed, and so it gets in your bloodstream, and, and, and from anywhere from 30 seconds to two minutes, it starts, it hits your brain. It's an amazing, amazing thing that it does. And the very first thing that it starts doing is impacting your judgment and your reason. If you are drinking, you are the very last person who has any idea how it's impacting you. And so for all your defense that you can drink a little bit and it doesn't impact you because you can hold your liquor, you're the last person in the world to be able to tell that. Because the first thing that stuff did when you drank it was start impacting your ability to tell what's going on. And interestingly, as I talk with folks about this, and not evil people, not, you know, not drunks, just Christians that for some reason have decided that they want to have a drink now and again. I'll often ask, well, well, why? Well, because I tell you, after a stressful day at work, I come home and I want something that's going to de-stress and relax me. And I drink enough so that it doesn't impact me, just relaxes me. Well, we're going to have to make up our minds. Is it impacting you or not? Because... On the one hand, they're telling me, I drink it for the effect it has on me, but then they turn around and tell me it doesn't have any effect. Now, which one is it? Is it having effect or not? I mean, the reason it's relaxing you is because it's getting into your body and it's affecting your brain and how it works. And it takes away all those, uh, those things that cause you to have the, 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 the tension and stuff. I mean, it's, it's impacting you. It's affecting you. So you're going to have to ask yourself the question, are you being honest when you're saying you're holding your liquor and it's not impacting you? And then turn around and saying, well, here's why I want it. I just want one to help me de-stress and help me relax. You can't have it both ways. Well, we've taken a look at nine, I think, pretty, pretty tough questions about this issue. I'll repeat what I said this morning. Part of the reason for presenting these lessons is a little bit selfish. And that is that I know when, when lessons like I preached on Proverbs a few weeks ago get preached... Uh, that there are some people that will say, well, that's all well and good, but I know about these passages over here. He's ignoring those. And I might be wrong about these passages that we've talked today, and maybe I've answered these questions wrongly today. And if you think I have, I am more than happy to study with you and find out about it and see where we've missed it so that we can help one another go to heaven. Because I don't want to limit what God hasn't limited, but I don't want to allow what God hasn't allowed either. But I also want to point out that this position that, that, I, that I'm teaching, that I believe is the Bible, what it says, I believe it's right. It's not, I haven't come to that position by ignoring these obvious verses. I think they all fit together in the same package that says God doesn't want us drinking alcohol. He wants us to stay sober. And so I encourage you to do that. Be sober. Not relatively sober. Really sober.
I certainly hope this two-part look at questions regarding alcohol and intoxicating drinks has been beneficial to you and helped you along in your own study regarding that issue. If you have any questions about alcohol and how the Christian should relate to it or any other topic about Christian living or serving God or questions about the Franklin Church, please give us a call at 615-794-2359 or you can contact us through our website. That's www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. Perhaps somebody gave you this lesson. If so, let me invite you to go to that website. Again, it's franklinchurchofchrist.com. We have numerous lessons there that you're free to download in audio and outline format. Listen to those, study those, pass them to your friends and neighbors, whatever you think will most glorify God and draw people closer to Him. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. But more importantly, may you richly bless God.